Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den belgiske diplomat og forfatter, Sondrine Dixon de Cleve, der i dag er co-præsident for Romklubben. Well, thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Romklubben er den institution, der i 1972 udgav bogen Limits to Growth, Grænser for Vækst, der blev et manifest for den europæiske miljøbevægelse, og som var en enormt ambitiøs undersøgelse af sammenhængen mellem vores produktion, forbrug, livsform og hele vores naturgrundlag. Det var grænser for vækst, som en gang for alle slog fast, at vores ressourceforbrug ikke kan være uendeligt, og at hele vores økonomi bygger på endelige ressourcer, som er naturens ressourcer. Så spørgsmålet om vækst og grænser, forholdet mellem vores økonomi og vores naturgrundlag, blev undersøgt, afdækket og udstillet i Grænser for Vækst. 50 år senere, der udgav Romklubben den ekstremt ambitiøse bog Earth for All, som er baseret på omfattende videnskabelige undersøgelser, meget store indsamlinger af dokumentation og udvikling af nogle helt nye indekser for grøn omstilling, sociale spændinger, fattigdom og ulighed. Earth for All er et manifest for en ambitiøs social og grøn omstilling. Præmissen for bogen er, at man ikke kan lave en grøn omstilling, hvis man ikke på samme tid konfronterer undertrykkelse af kvinder, fattigdom, fødevarekrisen og den økonomiske ulighed. For hver eneste gang, man vil pålægge landbruget ekstra afgifter, man vil pålægge vores transport ekstra afgifter, man vil gøre det dyrere at gøre det, der udleder CO2, så støder man på det sociale argument, nemlig at det vil vende bunden nedad. Det vil ramme den tunge ende hårdest, og det vil eskalere uligheden i vores samfund. Det er ikke altid realiteten, for som bekendt er det de 10% rigeste i verden, der udleder omkring 40% af, hvad der aktuelt bliver udledt fra privatpersoners forbrug. Men man bliver nødt til at have et socialt retfærdigt og et nogenlunde stabilt samfund, hvor der er adgang til bæredygtige, sunde fødevarer for alle, hvis man vil gennemføre den drastiske transformation af vores livsform, som vi ikke har været i stand til de sidste 40 år. Earth for All er både et manifest, en undersøgelse og et konkret politisk program, som punkt for punkt fremlægger, hvad man kan gøre for at, få, komme, for at realisere hele den her omstilling. Og så er det en enormt inspirerende præmis for bogen, at hele den grønne omstilling faktisk kan gennemføres, hvis hvert eneste land i verden er villig til at bruge mellem 2 og 4 procent af deres BNP. Mere behøver det ikke koste. Så er der nogle udlændingsmekanismer mellem global syd og global nord, mellem de lande, der historisk har udledt mest, og dem, der er mest udsat for konsekvenserne af de udledninger, som de også kommer ind på i bogen. Sondrine Dixon de Cleve har også udgivet en anden bog. I 2021 udgav hun sammen med den belgiske prinsesse Esmeralda og to unge aktivister bogen Kelmonde på Demain, som er en samtale mellem de to erfarne klimaaktivister De Cleve og Esmeralda og de to unge klimaaktivister om, hvilke sejre der har været, hvilke nederlag der har været, hvad det er for en historie, som de unge aktivister står på, og ikke mindst, hvorfor det er, at det er kvinder, der har ført an i den grønne omstilling og stadig gør det. Det er overhovedet ikke tilfældigt, at mange af klimabevægelsens anfører i dag er kvinder, som 
Greta Thunberg, Louise Neubauer, Sahra Biabani, Elisabeth Wathuti, Lawrence Tubiana, Christiana Figueres og rigtig mange andre. Noget af det kommer vi ind på i den samtale her, hvor Sondrine Dixon de Cleef blandt andet fortæller, hvorfor det for hende er helt naturligt og overhovedet ikke overraskende, at kvinderne går forrest. So let's go right to it. Uh, you mentioned quite briefly your own upbringing in California, in Kilmontepur, Pur Domain, and there was something about the political atmosphere at the time that inspired you. How did you originally become politically engaged? Well, it, it's really interesting that already at the age of seven, when we had the, the crisis uh, with regard to energy in the Middle East, So that was the real spark of my understanding that something was going on, that we couldn't have access to energy forever. Uh, at that time, actually, a lot of the vehicles were allowed to go and pump up um, if they had an odd or an even. So, you know, we had odd and even days of going up and filling up at the pump. It was also the time when we had water scarcity, which California continues to suffer from. But I can remember through most of my growing up as well, uh, but in particular at that time during the energy crisis, that we were having extreme water issues and we were being told, you know, only to flush if you had to and to ensure that you saved water by taking a shower or a bath with a friend or a family member. So it was it was interesting as a child to start to think, even if you don't understand it deeply, cognizantly, you, you are going into your subconscious of something just isn't quite right here. And and I that was also very much the beginning of of my curiosity in terms of inequalities. Because we would shop at what we called then the, the local co-op, which was actually a cooperative supermarket where there was all kinds of, of uh, products that were already at that time either organic or at least being labeled. And some of the most interesting labels were the ones around migrant workers in California. And um, and explaining the issues around, for example, at that time, there was a big pushback from tomato laborers who were getting underpaid. And my being an avid reader at a very young age, I started to learn from these labels what exactly was happening, whether there were too many pesticides or uh, the fact that when uh, you, you had certain tuna cans, tuna was actually being fished with dolphins and therefore by catching the tuna you were killing dolphins etc etc so that was really the start of my open consciousness towards inequality and environmental issues and then in the early 20s when i was already at university i started to um, really work um, in uh, in or be interested in environmental issues but at the international level And what, because we have people here in the newspaper that were, as you, formed in the late, early 70s, and they saw these signs growing up where they were just kids. And some of them, they picked activism. They were activists throughout their careers and journalists as well. Then we have others who left activism quite early because they thought there was only so much you could achieve there. What, what were your reflections on which, which path to take? So it's interesting. I, I think that um, I don't distinguish between activists and those that have been working in the field as long as they were 
actively trying to change things in the field. And I think that's really what I wanted to do my entire career. But I didn't start my career in, uh, let's say, the environment. I started my career in international trade. And interestingly, I was contacted by the head of the European Policy Office here for WWF, who said, uh, you know, this was when I was doing just my stage, my internship in the European Commission. Uh, by then, I had been recruited for a stage from California and the University of California, Davis. And what he said to me is, we have to change these trade rules because actually we're allowing for products to come into Europe that are very clearly creating problems, whether they be uh, different types of forestry products from the rest of the world. Um, so we together started behind the scenes while I was still an intern working on some of these issues. And that's when I realized that I could combine my my intern my thirst for doing things at the international level and my understanding of environmental issues together and uh, start to get much more active in trying to push for new policies and i was then recruited by globe the global legislators organization for a balanced environment that was actually started by al gore with some european members of the european parliament and and that was fascinating because there I realized that activism can also be translated in diplomacy. If you know what needs to change, and if you understand good diplomacy, you also know that you need to build trust. You need to have all the understanding of the different issues on all sides. And so it was a really deep learning curve in terms of how you can integrate real change in diplomacy and we were um it was a fascinating time to be able to work with al gore john Kerry, um incredible members of the european parliament the japanese diet as well as the russian parliament at the time on key issues like whaling climate change uh, environmental justice etc and maybe i'll just close with with that parentheses at least at that time just in the beginning of my career I, I really learned as well that um, it's so hard to label people as bad or good or to label certain parties as bad or good, because at those days, most parties were collaborating around the environment, even the Republicans and the Democrats. So it was more of a challenge of how do we address these issues collectively? It's funny because I remember when I was very young, I'm from 1974, but I remember the Rio summit. And I remember hearing for some reason, George Herbert Walker Bush coming home from the Rio summit and promising that, of course, he wouldn't change the American way of life, but that he would use the power of the White House to, to, yeah. fight, to fight the greenhouse gases. And I remember this White House greenhouse when I was when I was quite young. So that was actually, at the time, there was a con consensus that it wasn't a leftist issue as much. Completely. And, and I think what's also interesting, and I, I really have felt that I've had a very privileged path. And you know, your question around why did you choose that path rather than another? I think it was a lot of incredible offers that I received. Not necessarily that I decided that I would never be an activist because I always felt I was trying to change. Even when I was inside the oil industry pushing 
for change inside the oil industry. But when I went on to, for example, a nuclear facility was one of my big immediate tasks after my master's in environmental sciences and putting in place an environmental management system, the first in a European nuclear facility here in Belgium. And, and seeing the pushback that I was getting from some of the workers who really had a hard time understanding why they should be protecting the environment when they were getting low pay, when they were actually really struggling to survive, when there were all kinds of union issues and power games, etc. And it was by actually meeting the site managers of Chernobyl where my work with them on making them proud of what they were doing was actually clinched and they got it because these two site managers arrived radioactive did not care about our environmental management system but just wanted to have more money from the belgian government and also more expertise in order to reopen chernobyl and when the all of the um, workers heard about this. They were just so angry that they were working so hard on following protocol and doing the right thing. And these renegades couldn't care less. And that's where it clicked that actually they were on the right side of history. And I think that's also part of my learning was that, again, you know, if you really find a way to convince people that this is their struggle. It's a positive struggle. It's something that they can really do that is right, um, but also will enable them to thrive, not just survive. Then, then that's an incredible learning. I think there's for many of the youth activists, at least here in Denmark, but I think it's quite all over Europe at the moment. There was this sense that 2019 was a, a moment. You know, Fridays for Future. We had the. European parliamentary election, you know, a an election for the European Parliament that was about climate. And we had an election here in Denmark. And, and they felt that they were convincing people at, at, at the moment. And, and now there's this fatigue saying we've been putting up the same demands for such a long time, showing the same signs. And we've seen Extinction Rebellions trying to do something a little bit more radical. And that makes them very, very unpopular. How do you see their position and their opportunities today, those youth in the streets protesting for climate and climate justice? So I think there's several aspects to this. One is that activism has been around for a long time. And this was coming back to our original conversation. You know, I think that um, the, the young climate activists that I spoke to were surprised to learn that I already was uh, very much thinking about environmental issues at the age of seven. That, um, that actually I was part of the anti-apartheid movement at uh, US universities already in the 80s, that um, you know, for them, it's almost as if they feel that they were the first, but we have the Vietnam War, we have so many people that have been anti-nuclear activists, et cetera. I, I think that we have to remember that activism has been around and that absolutely the role of the youth activists have has been extraordinary at a time that it was necessary because there was a disconnect between the ambition in Paris and and in fact you know this builds up from Rio because I was also at Rio 
And when you look at, at Rio and then all the cops since then, and then Paris, and then feeling that, well, what happened at Paris? Are we really anywhere near? They, they had absolute cause to be angry. What I spoke to many of the climate activists about is that, of course, with COVID hitting, it became increasingly difficult to get to the streets. And so it's almost as if the wind was taken out of their sails because this was a place where they could go. And, and let's remember, this is only the privileged youth in Europe and the United States and some countries where they were able to go to the streets. Many developing country activists either were very frightened to go out in the streets or did not want to miss out on school because school for them is fundamental and a part of their economic development. So I, I think that uh, that really took a hit um, on, on the movement and made it very difficult. Uh, what we're seeing now is that um, also there's this whole move around tokenizing youth activists and bringing them into operations, you know, like Louisa has been invited to be on boards and uh, Adelaide and others have been invited to be part of advising different com um, governments. This to a certain degree is good. But we need to make sure that we keep a balance between the groundswell of the movement at the grassroots level, and I would say youth and others, so in a real intergenerational movement has to continue, we have to continue to hold governments accountable. And, and yet also make sure that some of those voices are integrated in at the highest levels and in the most important positions so as to ensure that there is a dialogue happening at both levels. And I think the third point as well is my, I say, um, sometimes disappointment at, at some movements and not necessarily the climate movement is the fact that there are so many different movements and narratives <laughs> that we don't join the dots. We don't make it a big movement. And that's a little bit what we're trying to say in Earth for All that together we are much more formidable. We have to be more strategic because really we don't have a lot of time. When, when you've been around for, for a while and, and seen ups You're and downs- You're making me feel very old, Rune. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I tried to say you've been around for a while, but-, but It's okay. <laughs> but, 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 but you've been around for a while and there's this, strange thing about climate activism that it requires impatience and patience at the same time that you mm. must push for change because the time factor is different yeah. here than in all other political fields that you know the capitalism we can, it goes a little up and down this is physics and this is once and for all these are mm. irreversible things so there is this this uh, that you must tell yourself we must push for change now on the other hand, we must be patient because we're dealing with very big systems. How do you advise people to deal with this if you agree with me that there is this dilemma? So I do think we're in a unique moment in time. I really do. Um, I, I agree with you that, that there is this tension between both. But I feel that we are faced with the poly crisis, which means that really the poly crisis has shown us that everything is interrelated that we are, if you look at COVID, we are as vulnerable as the most vulnerable link. So that uniqueness is that we should be tapping into people's consciousness 
and policymakers as well, and making them realize that actually everything is systems and they are interrelated. And we can start to create the right trigger mechanisms to really shift them towards the right types of systems that will underpin a paradigm shift. And, and I think that uh, that's the first. So the first is the poly crisis, you know, use the crisis. This is the moment for a transition. There is no better time than a crisis to force people to rethink. And that I am disappointed that we have not just, we are only thinking about the crisis itself rather than what it shows us. During COVID, we saw that we came back to what was most essential, um, the importance of healthcare, the importance of the care economy, that an extractive economy is actually the one that got us in the trouble. You know, the constant dependency on a value chain, which is either based on unholy alliances, as we've seen in the Ukrainian invasion, or based on extraction, which makes us totally dependent on resources from outside of Europe, for example. So I think these learnings are fundamental, but also the flip side, which was the beauty of COVID, the solidarity, the community mm -hmm. effort, the transition and transformation in communities, and also at the national level, the fact that yes, governments had to step up to the plate, and yes, it was difficult, but they took a level of authority that was to try to save and protect the many rather than the few. And those are fundamental learnings, which we really should be thinking about in terms of the next phase. What are we developing then as an economy? And in that, you know, our surveys that we undertook through Earth for All showed that 74% of citizens in G20 countries are ready to move towards a well-being economy. Hmm. So even though it's daunting and it seems daunting, this is the moment where we can tap into that and actually start to show that we can do the right thing for, for people so that they thrive and not just survive. And maybe just the last point, you know, I, I find it quite extraordinary how people romanticize our current neoliberal economy. I mean, it really is this romanticized notion that the neoliberal economy works, that the American dream still exists, which it doesn't. It's totally broken. Um, you know, they, no one is ready to admit that actually the country that has brought the most people out of poverty is China. I'm not saying that a dictatorship is the right way to go, but I do think it's time to pause and to reflect. We have so many perversities in the neoliberal economy that do not enable people to thrive. We have the greatest amount of, of disconnect between the wealthiest and the poorest and a growing differential between them, which we will talk about in a little bit around the social tensions. So it, it really is the moment to actually admit with the suicide rates that are going up, mental illness that is going skyrocketing, the first generation that's going to make less than its parents, the COVID vulnerabilities, the climate vulnerabilities, the value chain disruption because of the Ukrainian invasion. I mean, come on. This just isn't, it's no longer working for, for people or the planet or prosperity. So I, I think this is a really exciting moment if, if human beings are ready to step up to the plate. In 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 the I feel your your book Earth for All, which you've written 
with uh, several colleagues of yours, is really addressing this moment and even calling it a survival guide for humanity or a survival kit for, for humanity. Can you tell a little bit about how this book came about? Because it's such an ambitious project. Yeah, it was. it's quite an exciting uh, project and book, and I'm just so proud and honored to be part of it. I think that um, the first key reflection was that it, it was last year, the 50th anniversary of the Limits to Growth, the seminal report to the Club of Rome's um, that was actually commissioned by Aurelio Pache at the time. Uh, he had asked MIT scientists, which were being led by actually Donella and Dennis Meadows to put together um, a system dynamic model and to think through the interrelationships between population growth and the impact on natural resources. And what would this mean in terms of potential alternative futures? And, and what we saw from the limits to growth is that actually in the 2020s, which is right now, we'd have a series of tipping points. And what we really wanted to do is to revisit the system dynamic modeling and to rethink what then in a 21st century um, model does, does it look like for us faced with all these challenges in terms of the scenario development of the future? And, um, and so we brought together uh, the Potsdam Institute and some of their system dynamic modelers, uh, the Norwegian Business School, and in particular, the lead Jürgen Randers, who was one of the original authors of The Limits to Growth, um, myself and the, the Club of Rome, and, um, and of course, a Stockholm Resilience um, Institute and Center. And, and together, we thought, okay, uh, could we do a report to the Club of Rome, like uh, we did uh, before the Limits to Growth, and, um, and very much address where we could go to bring in this kind of notion of, of hope and, and of opportunity of the future. But I wanted to make sure that we did two things if we were going to do this program of work. One was that the system dynamic modeling could not be an end in of itself. It needed to be stress tested by economists and thought leaders from across the globe because we realized that most of our economists that are thinking about a different type of growth are those coming from the West. So we brought together a team, a multidisciplinary team of economists and thought leaders from across the globe to stress test the results from the system dynamic modeling. And then the third pillar of this exciting journey was to then create a movement where we would make all of the information accessible, the start to work with different um, governments across the globe and see if we could indeed implement some of the recommendations from Earth for All. And uh, it has been uh, an incredible journey and it's not over. We are continuing with a series of deep dives. We are doing updated regional models now and also national models. And we are being asked by everything from academic institutions through countries like Vanuatu, but even others, to actually implement uh, the Earth for All model. So it's it's very interesting. We've even had conversations with Ukraine. You know, some would say that the climate change in itself is such a huge challenge, and we've been failing to address it, at least adequately, for the last... Mm -hmm. We have been addressing it, and we have 
transformed our societies to a certain extent, our life forms. But that this problem in itself, we need to use Christiana Figueres' words, keep it front and center all the time. And then when you make this giant leap model where you, where you embrace the notion of polycrisis, we have all these other crises at the same time, and we must address all of them. Then some would be uh, a little anxious, myself included, that this will allow leaders to say, well, climate crisis is just one of other crises. We must look at them differently. H how do you see this? For me, this is quite a dilemma that you want something that's being repressed all the time, front and center, but you always want, also want it to connect it to the other factors at play in society. Yeah, I think that's a fabulous question. I, I don't think we can get away with just focusing on climate without addressing poverty and inequality or even addressing our dependent material dependencies because that's what's gotten us into the high emissions. I mean, an extractive economy is why we have climate change. The fact that we have continued to extract natural resources to burn fossil energy is why we are in the climate mess. So it's not to overcomplexify or to complicate the discussion because that's not our intention, but instead to say, we actually can solve the climate crisis if we address poverty and inequality, empowerment of women, and address obviously how we shift our sectors, energy and food at the same time. But we will never solve the climate crisis if we don't take into consideration poverty. I, I really think it's fundamental. And if you look at the, the deep, deep distrust that has grown at the, for example, the COP negotiations between the most vulnerable states who really had to fight for damage and loss, the most vulnerable states that keep on asking for capital flows so that they can transition in a very different way, not depend on an extractive economy, not continue to burn resources, but still develop. You cannot separate them. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't focus. I think there are key priorities and we show that in the way in which we look at the different turnarounds. If you look at energy poverty, for example, I mean, one of the key priorities is the energy system. And we know that we can invest in renewables and new technologies until the cows come home. But if we don't <laughs> stop burning fossil energy, we're not gonna decrease our emissions. So it's also understanding where the priorities are. And then if you unpack that further, okay, how do we then decrease our fossil energy use in countries that are really trying to develop economically? How do we ensure that from the West and from China and other places that are producers of renewables, that we actually ensure technology transfer, knowledge transfer, but also enable these countries to have their own industries in this area so that we facilitate the market flow and the market development within these countries, always taking into consideration the fact that we also need to reduce our consumption and we need to reduce uh, the way in which we, we, we have a carbon footprint and really look at efficiencies and optimizing of the system. 
Yes, because your precision and growth is, I think, very interesting. In you know, for in some areas, you're very radical with what you suggest and how you connect the 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 pieces in in the giant pattern. But when it comes to growth, uh, you take pretty much, I think, the position of Kate Rayworth, saying, "Well, this is not actually an essential question. We're agnostic about growth in and of itself." there should be some room for growth for some development countries, mm -hmm. but our own consumption our own consumption should decrease. What were your reflections about this notion of growth at the center? No, it's absolutely that. I mean, I think that, you know, we, we, we absolutely recognize as the Club of Rome and as the authors of, of this book, that uh, this is about economic development. It's about creating an earth for all. Creating an earth for all means you have to take into consideration growth in some countries. Uh, it means that that growth though, has to be obviously taking into consideration the planetary boundaries, taking into consideration the fact that we are on a finite earth and taking into consideration the fact that we need to think through what does poverty look like? If you look, as I said, at the social tension index that we have created, and the fact that in the United States, for example, wealth is going through the roof for a few, but not for the many. We've never had such a growth in poverty in many of our Western countries, United States, UK, and many other countries. And what we're seeing is that productivity and so-called GDP growth is absolutely not enhancing wealth distribution. So the well-being of people is not actually growing. It is just the well-being of a few. And that is why we say that if you have the right type of growth, a growth which takes into consideration a more egalitarian distribution level, which we see in the Scandinavian countries, much more than you see it in many parts of the world, and where you start to enable more people to come out of poverty, that is what we're talking about. Now, how do you get there? There are a variety of different incredible models for doing this. Um, we, if we're talking about the turnarounds because we've seen that through these two scenarios, if you address poverty, inequality, empowerment, food and energy, and you put in a consideration a beyond GDP model of economic um, development, which very much looks at new indicators, taking into consideration the care economy, taking into consideration education, taking into consideration much more than just productivity, then then we feel that you can actually move into a system that starts to redistribute wealth and really in a way which actually enhances the economy for the many rather than the few at the local level the donut which is kate rayworth's incredible model is a perfect way to do this and we see other models that are developing the well-being economy models through the well-being economies and the well-being governments, all run by women, by the way, except for Wales, but also um, now being looked at by Canada and by other countries across Latin America, that it's, it's this broader assessment of valuing what matters across the economy that creates stability 
and really starts to enable much more distributed economic development. I'm curious how you see the this whole thinking behind Inflation Reduction Act, because we could say, uh, my own personal attitude, I think, is that it's some of the best that we've seen. It's an incredibly difficult political environment. This will drive America a lot faster to renewable energy, and it will reduce emissions. On the other hand, it's also a growth strategy. It's And this will, I think the you know more about the EU than I do, but I think ultimately that the EU will lessen the market fundamentalism and understand that it's important to give space for public investment. So I think that RIA will be the model for, for, for a green, green transition in Europe. And, you know, it, it is a great bargain with the working class, I think, to offer reindustrialization. I think it has something to it. It has public investments. On the other hand, it also, it's still a growth strategy and we have a growth competition within countries that have experienced a lot of growth. How do you see this problem with, with the, this strategy? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. There's so many debates right now about the IRA. Um, I, I'm I'm really surprised actually that they called it the IRA because there there is so much cause for confusion when you talk about the IRA. But anyway, um, it, it's interesting also to think about the ethos of the IRA. I mean, it came from a strategy to also protect the U.S. economy from China. Um, it it is definitely a growth strategy rather than a redistribution of wealth strategy or a revolutionary industrial strategy. Um, but on the other hand, and this is the way the U.S. has always worked. If you look at, for example, the growth in renewables in Texas, it had nothing to do with environmental beliefs and everything to do with profit um, and investment in the renewables industry because uh, that was the way in which many of even some of the oil investors saw that they could make uh, some money. Are, are we against that? No, I don't think that there is a problem in, in ensuring that these uh, options are marketable and investable. I think the only problem is if it's only about short-term gain, and if it's not about a broader plan of industrialization that really is going to bring people into a new economy, which enables them to, to really thrive, enables them to be resilient to future shocks and stresses. And, and I do think that there are elements of the IRA that does that. And you can start to see some of the questions that are coming out and the broader discussion around a new economic structure for the US that does deal with ensuring that more people have access to clean energy, that this is you know more than just a quick fix um, competitiveness plan and, um, and uh, profit-making plan. On the other hand, it is clear, and this is where it's difficult for Europe to, to think through its own strategy. <laughs> Europe has always been much more of a regulatory environment than the United States, much more focused on public investment rather than private investment, much more focused on a, a kind of taking time in terms of its innovation strategy and research and innovation. 
um, as, as you know, I chair the um, the think tank of research and innovation on the economic and societal impacts of research and innovation. And, and we really believe that actually, you know, again, seizing this transformative moment, we can pre bring in a green industrial strategy at the European level if we also think through how we streamline that strategy so that we reduce timelines, for example, on permitting, so that we really look at an architecture and infrastructure that is enabled in a very short period of time. And, and the bureaucracy that exists in Europe is really problematic, as is, by the way, and I think this is incredibly important, the lack of coordinated effort on R&I between member states and between universities. So what we see in my having grown up in California, you can see the triangle of mm. research and innovation in California between academic institutions like UC Berkeley, UC Davis, working directly with the state of California and industry to really meet challenges. We need to be much more ready to work with progressive industry to do the same, but also have our academic institutions cross fertilize and, and start to fund multiple projects with different universities, rather than each university doing its own thing and not thinking about the greater good and our greater challenges. So I, I do think this is an opportunity to really break down the silos in the European system around research and innovation and, and think through what does this look like? And there are unbelievable companies in Europe and we were ahead of the game on green innovation and we have to stay ahead of the game. Well, we have just time for one, one last question. And there are so many other things I'd like to ask you, but uh, one thing that I've been curious about for a long time is, is whether Uh, women, whether the climate movement were women-led generally, because you know we know all these. We've had them: Elizabeth Bathucci on the show, Lawrence to to be an Kate Kate Rayworth, but also Louisa Neubauer, Greta Thunberg. There are so many. And then I saw in this incredible dialogue between the generations that you actually mentioned uh, that you mentioned that there are so many women in 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 the climate movement. Has it always been like this? And and, and how do you explain it? I think it often is, and I think it's also felt across uh, most of the world, not just in the West. Uh, you know, part of that is because women have been sidelined for for so many years and could not be part of the power structures. And therefore, when they were angry, when they felt that their children were actually going to be affected by future generations uh, because of climate change or planetary effects. Um, when they saw that their communities, you know, look at uh, some of the the, the great um, defenders of some of the biggest accidents, whether they be Bhopal, whether they be chemicals, whether they be pollution in waterways that we saw in the United States and in so many other countries. It was often women because women are on the front lines of going and getting the water. So you can see that also in Africa. Um, they're on the front lines of having to go and get their firewood in Africa or make sure that their families are fed. And, and so they have been natural proponents of change. 
I also think that there is a, a deep, how can I describe this? But I, I, I feel that women are, are very touched because they, 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 their, their natural disposition to have children are very touched with the way in which whatever we do has an impact on future generations overall. And, and therefore a concern because they have their own kids. And we have seen, by the way, the CEOs that have really changed because, you know, whether it, it be interface or I know that there are big CEOs across different companies who are really questioned by their grandchildren, you know, what are you doing? And this had a huge impact. But women have, in general, been on the front lines of these environmental and humanitarian movements for many, many years. Um, if you look at uh, Wangira Maathai in terms of the forestry movement in Kenya, um, so many others across the globe. And, and they also, and we saw this, by the way, Runa, um, when we started to have conversations around food and resilience, and my role at the UN Food Systems Summit, that in particular in Africa and Asia, women were on the front lines as well, whether in war areas, so for example, Yemen, or whether in areas that were suffering from drought or from COVID, to make sure that people had access to food, that people had access to water, that they were trying to come up with solutions. And then maybe the last point is historically, let's not forget that when men went to war, women had to pick up the pieces. And again, they had to make sure that actually not only their men would be fed when they came back, but while they were gone, that they continued to farm the land, protect the land, build resilience, etc. So I, I do believe that uh, there is a historic and kind of an inbuilt inbuilt resilience um, and, and hope mechanism in women that gets them involved in these issues. And I also believe that uh, often, actually, we have seen that it is women that get more involved in sustainability issues across the globe, whether it be in terms of corporate social responsibility or whether it be in terms of politicians who have really spoken to these issues like we have seen in the well-being governments. Well, thank you. I think that's a beautiful place to stop. And I like to think of us as picking up the pieces together after a long war in our own natural habitat. Thank you for your work, Sandrine. Thank you for your inspiration, everything we do. We follow you and cherish you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Luna. I really appreciate it. Take good care and thank you for your great questions and your attention. Thank you. Bye-bye. Det her var min samtale med Sandrine Dixon de Kleve. Hvis man gerne vil læse bogen, som vi taler om det meste af tiden, så hedder den Earth for All. Hvis man gerne vil læse den franske bog, som vi taler om i uh, forbindelse især med, hvorfor det er kvinder, der fører an i klimavælde, så den Quel monde pour demain. I næste uge, der taler vi med den unge amerikanske klimaaktivist Sahra Biabani, som har lavet sit eget firma, som hedder In The Loop, hvor hun distribuerer genbrugstøj mellem unge i Texas. Hun har ført an i sagsanlæg mod de store amerikanske universiteter. Hun udgiver hver uge et nyhedsbrev med positive klimanyheder, for som hun siger, hvis man ikke har håb, så kan man ikke gå ind i kampen, og vi har brug for folk, de går ind i kampen. Den her udsendelse var som de seneste udsendelser, 
Produceret af vores gode hjælper og kammerat, Mass Adam Vener. Tak til Mass. Tak til jer for at lytte med. Jeg håber, vi høres ved igen i næste uge. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg.